Welcome to Harvest to Pour, the business of beverages, with your host, Matthew Schiff. This is the podcast for all of those who are involved in the agriculture all the way to the distribution of beverages. And now your host, Matthew Shipp. Hello, this is Matthew Shipp, your host with Harvest to Pour, the business of beverages. And today I am here with Mara Young from Community Cultures Yeast Lab. So Community Cultures is a full-service yeast lab located in the heart of San Antonio. They specialize in pure commercial yeast strains, custom blends, and bacteria, as well as rare and newly discovered yeast sources directly from nature, offering full lab services, banking classes, and education. Now, you must be asking, this is about beverages and stuff. What, what, are, what, what are we doing and talking about yeast? Well, Mara, uh, I'll, I'm going to let you... T- uh, tell them about that today. But how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. So, uh, what? How did Community Cultures Yeast Lab come into existence, and where did you find this need? And take us through your, your story. Sure. You know, it's funny when you look back. I think, especially as the years go on and you get more and more removed from the beginning, it's so funny to look back at all the things that came together at exactly the right time to create something kind of this unique. But at that time, my, my partner, Rob Green, he was, he had just finished his undergraduate degree and he was studying biology and biochemistry. And in those classes, they, they work with yeast, you know, so yeast is a wonderful cell to work with in, and especially microbiology and, and biochemistry and all kinds of labs it's just a great organism to work with and, and learn from. So he already kind of had a very sort of amateur knowledge there. And he was also at the same time working at a brewery in his senior year, just to put himself through school and was getting more and more interested in craft beer. I was at the time working in higher education uh, and I was considering a transition out of the university um, and the college setting, I really wanted to find a way to get into environmental science, sustainability, conservation, specifically working with plants and animals in a park setting. And that was not my background, so I don't really know how to do that. And I was sort of stumbling, trying to figure out a way to make that work without the experience and the education. And, and so at the, at that time, you know, we kind of, we, Rob and I, this was before the business and before we were married. So Rob was working in the, the brewery and he was learning more and more about yeast. And he was, he had sort of become friends with the head brewer there and was shadowing him. And they would have these wonderful conversations about yeast, the brewer from his experience, his experience of fermentation. And Rob was coming from his experience propagating yeast in a, in a laboratory setting. And I, in turn, wanted to delve more and more into the parks and conservation. And essentially what kind of happened all at one time was Rob was speaking to the brewer at that time, and they were talking a lot about the fact that commercial yeast, generally speaking, commercial yeast comes from, is originally sourced from a representative brewery. And as a result, we tend to discuss yeast strains in terms of where they come from. So, for example, we talk about Belgian yeast strains. We talk about French saisons. We talk about German lager yeast. And we we talk about it in those ways because yeast manufacturers, like ourselves, 
they have historically sourced the original yeast culture from a brewery that represents sort of a, a, a typical and perfect example of, of a beer style, right? And they get the yeast from that brewery that represents that beer style, and then they sell it as that yeast strain. Does that make sense? <laughs> no, this is great. This does. And so we didn't quite get into the fact that, you know, yeast for beer and brewing, and this is essentially, you do a lot of holding these cultures for breweries. And I didn't know that yeast had a lineage. I guess it makes does make sense. Uh, I mean, I when I worked in the laboratory, I, we had this particular strain of yeast, but it definitely was not for beer. We were growing proteins for insects. So anyway, yeah, so yeah, so, yeah, so this so, is so the beer, yeah, yeah. So yeast. So historically speaking, yeast usually comes from this representative area, region, and brewery, right? So, for example, Belgians, Belgian yeast strains, and Belgian yeast strains are used to recreate Belgian styles of beer. And so, what breweries have access to are these different categories of of yeast strains. And so one day Rob was speaking to this brewer and him and I and our personal lives were doing lots of camping and lots of kayaking and backpacking. And I'm super into botany and nature and parks and wildlife. And one day he sort of said, well, why don't we have American yeast strains? And the brewer at the time said, well, we don't really. I mean, there's, there's very few, you know, there's, the Chico yeast strain, which is probably for the North American continent, one of the most famous and well-known of breweries is the Chico strain. And that is one of only a very, very few yeast strains that were sourced and originated in North America and are resold to breweries as an American yeast strain. And so Rob sort of said, well, why aren't there more? Why don't we find more. <laughs> Let's make more. And so he and I started researching what that would look like. Well, how do you find yeast strains in America and what would that look like? And and it was really just kind of a pipe dream. And, you know, we were both going in completely different directions. And I was kind of going straight forward into conservation and sustainability and working in parks. And he thought he was going to go on to grad school in biotech, and and yet this idea was there. And so we started camping and hiking and kayaking all over Texas and collecting samples from all over the state. So how do you know? How do you know what to look for? So yeast is everywhere. I mean, it's absolutely yeah. everywhere, and it's been it's pretty much on every single surface and it's found naturally in the wild on, on pretty much any surface, but especially any sugar source. So you're going to find yeast in any kind of sugar source. So it's growing on grapes, it's growing in flowers. The absolute assumption of, and the original yeast strains long before you could buy it from yeast manufacturer is just in the air. You use spontaneous and natural fermentation. You put the wort out, the yeast falls into the sugar source and it ferments the beer. So we know that it's everywhere and we know it's going to be probably, you know, prevalent in any kind of yeast source. And there's lots of trial and error, but we thought, you know, let's give it a try and, and so we did. We would go camping and we'd take samples and we'd give it a try. And it was terrible. And we'd have these rotting flowers in our backpacks. And so, you know, that didn't work. And then, you know, we would do some research and we would read a bunch of articles. And by we, I mean, I mean him. <laughs> and uh, he would look into it more and he would 
sort of develop an additional experiment that he wanted to try. So he'd go on yet another kayaking trip and he would build these little sample kits and he'd perform. So was it about and... the kayaking or was it about the yeast? I don't know. This is great. This is a, I, I like this business model. <laughs> Like I said, it's just, it's a wild amount of different things all coming together at the same time that allowed this to happen. I mean, there is no single part of the story that isn't, I guess, important. So, yeah, so we continued to perfect that process. And over time, Rob created this amazing kind of shelf-stable, sugar-based, wort-based kind of sample kit. And we started swabbing samples from all over the state. And at that time, I think he thought he would continue to go on to grad school and that this would be the basis of a really interesting, you know, PhD program. And maybe he would publish his findings and he was starting to think about it in terms of maybe, you know, the terroir of Texas. What is the terroir of Texas yeast strains? And maybe he would answer that question. The truth is that what actually happened is the first brewery found out that we had yeast and we were working on yeast. And one person told the next person, the next person told the next person until finally somebody reached out and said, hey, I heard you have yeast. Tell me more. The and first so, brewery. Who was the first yeah. brewery? The is very it actually first, called? Yeah. The very first brewery was Poonsler Brewing owned by Barrett Deckard and they're, they're still in business and very successful. And, wow. and we said, yeah, we have yeast. I mean, uh, and then this became a whole different kind of model. Yeah. I, mean, I think we could do this as a business. You know, what, it, what what would that look like? There's no other yeast labs anywhere in this part of the United States. We're all the way down here in Texas. Fresh liquid yeast is temperature sensitive and it has a long way to go. So I think that maybe there's a need here. We're also not doing the same thing as every other lab. So maybe that's interesting. Maybe people would be interested in that. I don't know. And so, and so we sort of, we started to pivot in that direction of actually manufacturing yeast specifically for breweries. And so we opened the business originally in 2017, just a tiny little sole proprietor kind of thing. We were still working out of our garage. We had no idea really what we were doing, but Rob was really developing an idea in his head. And we really started to look at what the reality was and the need was in the industry. And we thought that it was something that could be a lot of fun and and have some need. And so we opened up a commercial space. You know, we, we got ourselves a commercial building and we got ourselves the appropriate equipment to start manufacturing wort on a regular basis as the yeast food. And we got ourselves our very first small business loan to start building the, the propagation tanks. And it just kind of took off from there. And after the first year in that space, we moved into a much, much larger space and we grew again. And from then, it's, it's changed its direction several times. We don't go all over Texas looking for yeast and flowers, but it's kind of what got us started and kind of how we got to where we are today. That's so nothing that we regret, but we don't make a lot of yeast from flowers anymore. That's great. I, I love your origin story. You, you were almost like the original culturist for the North America in, in a way, just going out there and exploring, bringing that in. Then 
the brewers are obviously instantly interested in like something new. I can make new flavors. I can make new tastes, more palates. And then growing this from your garage into a commercial building and then expanding again, obviously you found a, a, a unique demand, but I really like going back to, you're just going out and hunting for it. This goes back to like some of the early American naturalists. What was his name? I can't remember, but there's a lot of naturalists that came over from England that were just collecting specimens and stuff. And they, you know, start, they what started over in Europe as collectors and brought over, it kind of reminded me of that, just going out and kayaks and hiking and collecting new things and actually finding uses and great. It, it's really neat. It's really, uh, Bartram was one of his name. I can't remember the, the full name of the naturalist that did that, but that's very much what it reminds me of. Yeah. I mean, I, that's a great point. I think that, you know, it's, it all sounds kind of wishy-washy and why does it, how does it all relate and what, mm -hmm. what we're doing. And, and I think a lot of it had to do also with the fact that in our personal lives, and this was all before Rob and I were, were also married. So this, in our personal lives, we were just kind of falling in love and camping was fun and we got excited about this idea. And so it just kind of took off, you know, I don't think that I necessarily really truly believed that this was a business plan. I think that we were kind of, everything was so exciting and everything sounded like a good idea because we were just in such a good place. And it just, you know, it was just all so, there was so much passion and excitement. Everything sounded like a good idea. Was it all a great idea? I don't know. But as we started to, you know, as, as we started to build all these samples and we started to propagate these from the samples, we started brewing with it at home. So we basically became sort of avid home brewers for a couple of years. And that's how we propagated the yeast and experimented Sweet. with yeast and how we were able to define its characteristics and its flavor profile. And, and that's when we realized that we really had something interesting to work with. And then as we grew as a business, of course, we realized that there were going to be thousands of breweries that did not want to work with yeast that came from flowers. And we, we also had to deal with that. There's a lot of misinformation about those native strains. There's a lot of, a lot of apprehension and fear and misgivings. Uh, a lot of breweries think that it's because it was sourced from the wild, it means that it's wild yeast. And in the brewing world, that's not necessarily a positive thing. That's often synonymous with off flavors and sour and funky. And so it's really hard for them to understand that this is yeast that was sourced from the wild, but it's then isolated. And if it's not Saccharomyces cerevisiae, it gets dumped and trashed. If it's not good for brewing, it gets dumped and trashed. It's then isolated to a pure single culture for brewing. So it's, we had to learn early on that that was kind of a scary thing for a lot of people and they weren't going to experiment with that. And that's okay. That's, that's completely okay. So we also had to source traditional commercial brewing yeast, just like every other yeast lab. And that we had to provide that as well in our catalog. And that's also been extremely popular. So it's, it's created, all of those things have sort of created who we are now and, and who we work with now and have gotten us this far for sure. So for our listener, can you, that may not know what Saccharomyces exactly is, do you want to give them a quick description why that specific? 
Absolutely. So typically speaking, Saccharomyces cerevisiae is the subspecies of yeast that is used in beer brewing. Uh, Banus is usually the yeast used for wine, but it can be used for beer and wine. And other organisms such as Britannomyces, Lactobacillus, Pediococcus are other microorganisms that can be found in fermented beverages, but can be associated with wild, funky, contaminated spoilage organisms. And so for us, when we, when we source our samples from the wild, we bring it back to the lab, we do not necessarily want it to be Britannomyces, for example, that not every brewery wants to work with. In fact, some are adamantly, you know, running away from, they, they don't ever want it. So we are looking for, and we're isolating this particular yeast because it is an excellent yeast for brewing beer. It's not the only option, but it's the most traditional, it's the most understood, it's the most recognized, and it's the most sought after. So when you're looking at a catalog of yeast options as a brewery, you are expecting and you are assuming that it is Saccharomyces cerevisiae. Got it. All right. Thank you. Other that can be a little bit scary. So I want to take a step back and take us through some of the challenges you ran into early on building this business and what did you do to overcome them? Overcome some of your roadblocks you ran into? Money. (laughs) Yes. You know, so because our origin story was the way it was that we just described, that it was really just kind of two people falling in love and we were going camping and we didn't really see it as a business plan. And it kind of all snuck up on us in a certain extent. We did not plan for it the way that most people typically plan to open a business. Mm-hmm. We didn't sit down with a business plan and an attorney and go to a million classes and learn how to open a business. We had all these different ideas in our head. And then we started thinking about opening a business. One of the things that also did not happen in a typical fashion is getting partners, loans, angel investors, etc. We didn't do any of those things. So we started the business with a very, very small amount of money. Truly, we started the company with maybe, you know, $5,000 in our savings account and said, okay, let's, let's do this and see what happens. We both had full-time jobs. It wasn't a big loss as, you know, a passion project, truly. And then it took off. So we have continued to grow organically. And I even turned my phone off. We have continued to grow organically from day one. We have grown slowly, uh, but surely from day one in that same fashion. We have, from that day, we have never uh, taken on any additional partners. We've never taken on any additional investors. We have only taken the very smallest loans. And even then, it was only the most recent SBA loans through, through the COVID, you know, kind of VA loans, we finally decided, I think it's time that we take on a small business loan and we expand and grow the business. So was it the right thing or the wrong thing? I don't know. It's created a challenge because although on the one hand, it's a beautiful thing to completely and totally own your own business. We don't owe anybody. We have nobody that we owe money to. We have very, very, very little debt. 
we have maybe one credit card and that's it. And that's beautiful. It's also meant that we've grown in a very slow and very humbling way since day one. We are still a very, very small staff. There are only three of us, even to this day, there's only three of us still. And next year in 2024, we are looking forward to one additional person that will make four of us. But we are still a very small company. We never plan on being sort of the, the ginormous North American yeast manufacturer. And that's okay with us. It means you always looking at your budget and you're always looking at how much help you can take on and you're always kind of balancing what that means and whether you did the right thing and maybe you should have taken on investors from day one. I don't know. <laughs> so what is your current open biggest challenge you're working on right now in your mind? So we just purchased for ourselves a brand new brew house, essentially. It, mm -hmm. It's exactly the same as, as any brewery would have in their in their brew house manufactured by a brewing specialist manufacturer. But in our case, it's slightly, well, it's very much customized for brewing wort, just wort for yeast propagation. Um, and that also came with a large electrical upgrade. The building that we're in is extremely old and has a very old three-phase power system. And it is taking our city's CPS the city CPS electricity, it's taking them a very long time to figure out how to logistically upgrade our ancient <laughs> three-phase power to today's three-phase power and get this thing up and running. So that's been hard, you know, just working with this older building, which has got all of its wonderful quirks being an old vintage building, and I love it, but it also comes with a lot of drawbacks. Every day there's something wrong. Every day something has to be fixed. And this beautiful new brew house that we just purchased is just sitting there in all its gleaming stainless steel glory, completely turned off and not able oh, to function. Geez. So each day is just taking another step to getting it towards that functionality. Uh -huh. Exactly right. Wow. Okay. And working in, in outside of a range that we have any control over. I mean, there's, I'm, I'm not an electrician and, and mm -hmm. I don't work for the city CPS company. And so there's nothing I can do. There's no amount of money that can make it happen faster. You are just at their whim, waiting for them to approve paperwork and approve equipment and then getting on the waiting list for a piece of equipment that took eight months to get here. And there are things like that that happen all day, every day that you're just kind of waiting for. Yep. And wait. Yep. And then finding ways to pivot around that. And what do we do until then? And, and, just taking a big breath and saying, okay, that's out of my hands. There's nothing I can do about it. We just continue on with the equipment we have, the equipment we've always had. And you just keep on making the best product you can. And So tell me how you, t you make decisions around pivoting around something like this with your team. I think for us, it just comes down to, can I do anything about it? No, I truly can't do anything about it. Okay, then I'm not going to beat myself up about it. I'm not going to place blame. It is out of my hands. There's nothing I can do. So what can I do? I can use the equipment I have and I can make the very best product I can with the equipment that we've always had. And we're going to be grateful for that because we've come this far because of that equipment. And I'm going to love it the way that it is because it has brought me this far. We have brought us this far. And so 
you know, we just keep on doing what we're doing. If there's nothing you can do about it, you just truly have to find a way to be okay with that and keep on putting one step in front of the other. And if you're able and you have the the time and the mental capacity, then maybe you add one more thing to the day that you can do. You know, you kind of say, okay, what's, what? you know, we all have a list of to-dos, right? Somewhere we all have a list of to-dos. So you check your list of to-dos and you say, okay, what's something that I can accomplish? It makes you feel in control. It allows you to get something important completed when something else can't be completed. And then you can close out at the end of the day saying, well, hey, I did do this though. <laughs> that, I this is actually killer today. <laughs> yeah, you did. <laughs> yeah, I did. So that is this is great advice for any entrepreneur, or any business, young business owner. You know, just when uh, things are out of your control, this is great advice. To just like find a way to move around it, be okay with it, but obviously don't forget about it. You can always you can always poke poke at the people that you need to poke at to get them to move. Yes. But being okay with it, that's, that is a very good piece of mindset for somebody new to have, to have. That's great advice. So what else would you say? And we're going to get a little more now into what normally if I'm interviewing somebody from the beverage industry, roastery, brewery, winery, I'm asking them for their harvest or journey. So what would you say makes community cultures definitely unique? And we've talked a little bit, quite a bit about this, but. What's that one thing that really makes you uh, stand out as far as um, other yeast? I don't know if there are there other yeasts, American yeast drink growers out now. So there are. So there are several other yeast manufacturers who specialize in beer and brewing yeast and brewing yeast drinks. Mm-hmm. The the majority of them continue to provide uh, very traditional historical lineage yeast strains. So as we were talking about before, all of the highly recognizable traditional yeast strains. There is one other small yeast lab that they do something really, really cool. And and I'll give them a shout out, Bootleg Biology. What they do is they work commercial breweries as well to capture native or wild yeast in sort of jars of wort in their backyard and then send it in and bank it. And so they, they kind of have a different approach, yeah. but I don't, I don't believe that anybody else, and, and I'm sure somebody will correct me and that's okay. I don't believe that any other commercial beer yeast manufacturer is going out all over the state and all over the country and all over the world and collecting native wild yeast from natural sources like flowers. And then bringing it back to the lab and isolating it into a pure single culture for brewing purposes. So that's, I mean, I think that that's one thing that's that's pretty cool about us. And I think the other thing, because as I mentioned before, there's a lot of breweries who don't use that. And they're never going to use it. And for those breweries, that's not at all what's cool about us. (laughs) They're never going to use that yeast. And and that's, that's totally fine. I think the other thing about us is that we changed our name early in the process. We were Texas Cultures Laboratories. We changed our name to Community Cultures Yeast Lab. And we changed that name to Community because, because we were getting those cultures at that point, not just from ourselves, but from friends, 
from brewers, from just these wonderful random people from all over the place that would send us emails and say, hey, I heard what you're doing and it's so cool. Can I sample a yeast strain from my favorite park in Minneapolis? Yes, absolutely. And it became a community effort. It it became sort of a, a citizen scientist effort. And so we changed our name to community, it, and it also really had to do with the with the craft beer community. In, in the beer world, we always talk about the craft beer community. And so we really liked that, and we really wanted to be a part of that, and we wanted to build a company that was about community. And so some that's something that we strive for every day that I think maybe makes us, not that the other yeast labs aren't super cool, because they are, and we're huge fans of all the other major yeast labs out there, but we go all the time. Tomorrow I'm volunteering for the Texas Craft Brewers Guild annual beer festival. And I'm just going to volunteer and pour beer all day long. That's my community. When somebody makes a collaboration beer, I am going to be there because that's my community. I show up to all the meetings. I'm on the board of directors for San Antonio Beer Week. I'm on the leadership for our local San Antonio chapter of the Pink Boots Society. These are my people and I really, really love them. And they are my best friends. As a result of being so close to my community, I'm probably never going to be a huge, big billion dollar business because I'm too, I feel I'm not, I'm not removed enough. (laughs) Um, But that's the way it is, you know, and we go to Austin. If we are in Austin, we stop by all of our local favorite breweries where we know every single one of the brewers by name. And we know their wife's name. We know their kid's name. I know your dog's name. (laughs) I know when it's your dog's birthday. So I think that that's just kind of, we're a small community and maybe one day we'll be big enough where I don't know everybody's name, but you know, that day's not today. So, Take us through this. what makes you unique is your 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 sourcing from the wild. So kind of take us through this that journey that that wild yeast takes, and when it comes into your lab, how it's isolated, identified, and it becomes a product. Absolutely. And, and, and bring up any challenges you guys have along the way. I'd love to hear about those because I know there are some in the lab with yeast. Absolutely. Yeah. You know. So. Again, we're going out into this, into the wild, all over Texas, all over the world, and we're taking these samples. And the very first thing, the very first challenge was that the little tubes kind of rotted and were totally gross. I think I mentioned that we had these like rotting flowers in our backpack. Growing everything, including the yeast, yes. Absolutely. And the, you know, the flower, the flowers themselves are all slimy and gross. And so that didn't work. And so we very, and of course, you know, we, we being, very serious about conservation uh, and sustainability. We also didn't want to take anything from the parks and leave nothing and take nothing, right? So the very next thing was creating a kit in which we swabbed the sample instead of taking the sample and putting it into a media that was shelf-stable. So that was a learning process that we had to change. Then once we had a kit that was shelf stable, Rob added a, a, a a small amount of chemical that would change color and indicate whether or not we had a yeast present so that after a day or two, we could throw it away. If it turned red or sort of a golden orange, we most likely had yeast present and we would take that back to the lab. At that point, you're incubating it. 
for a couple of days so that you can just, you know, uh, accelerate the growth uh, of anything. Most likely what you have is mold, lactobacillus, pediococcus, maybe some yeast, Britannomyces. Maybe you have lots of yeast. You probably have many different subspecies of yeast. So you are accelerating the growth of all of them. From there, if you have something that looks like yeast colonies, you're plating it again, and this time you are plating it in a differential media. And so that's sort of a, a proprietary test that we've come, we've developed over the years in-house. And that's adding or subtracting certain nutrients, food, or chemicals that will inhibit the growth of certain organisms and accelerate the growth of certain organisms. And in this case, of course, we want to accelerate the growth of yeast, but we want to inhibit the growth of mold, bacteria, Britannomyces, lactobacillus. And so from that differential media plate, we have, we can both visually see what we have. It's basically four different windows on one plate. And we can kind of look at just with our, just a quick eyeball, we can see whether we have yeast or not. And from there, we'll pluck a single colony of that yeast, uh, a colony that is growing entirely by itself and is not touching any other colonies. We will plate it one more time. And then we will run the DNA through PCR. And then we are looking at, and we're really going to focus in and uh, hone in on, on the, the DNA of that particular yeast. And we are looking for, at that point, a positive result of Saccharomyces cerevisiae or Saccharomyces banus. We'll kind of take either one. And then at that point, if we have a positive match, for, for either one or both, we will isolate it one more time. If we have multiple uh, subspecies of Saccharomyces cerevisiae, that's even better, and we'll isolate them again. We'll run DNA genetic identification by PCR one more time. And then from there, we will propagate that, that individual yeast strain, and we will pitch it into a five-gallon, essentially a homebrew pitch into wort and we will start what generally takes several several months of back-to-back -back experimentation to look for certain characteristics that are needed in the brewing industry so from there we are going to brew it with and without hops we're going to brew it at different temperatures we're going to brew it at different starting gravities or higher amounts of sugar lesser amounts of sugar and we're going to make sure that the yeast can function and ferment in all of these different environments. And then from there, if it is capable of fermenting at all, in all of these different uh, environments, then we have a pretty good fermenting yeast strain. And then last but definitely not least, we're looking at the flavor and aroma. And so then we'll continue to brew it and taste it and smell it and brew it and taste it and smell it, you know, a million more times. Yes. <laughs> and then if we've got something that we're really, we really feel good about, then it's just really detailing all of those different fermentation characteristics. So we're looking for flocculation, attenuation, optimum fermentation temperatures, flavor, and aroma. Wow. So and it's a long, long process. Yeah. 
So I know you can't see my face, listeners, but I'm, I'm over here kind of grinning like a Chester cat because I, I recognize some of this stuff and I was doing in the lab. She mentioned PCR. For those of you who don't know what that is, polymerase chain reaction. It's a way of amplifying multiple copies of DNA so you can actually see it and identify it for certain markers that will help them identify what strain or what species of yeast they're looking at. So, okay, th that was great. I, I, I enjoyed that very much. I don't know if anybody else did. I, I sure th thoroughly enjoyed that. Very long answer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just sitting here geeking out. All right. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> so what is, it, what is in all of that, what is the biggest challenge? Where's the, where, where's the one place things can go wrong? Everywhere. Okay. So as I described, that's a very, very long process. Mm -hmm. And there are so many kind of, there are so many what we call chopping blocks along the way. So I mean, mm -hmm. immediately, if yeast doesn't grow on the plate, that's it. That sample's done. There, there's nothing, you know, that's, that's gone. And it gets topped. And then even if it does grow yeast, it's not the right kind. So it gets tossed. Or if it is the quote unquote, right kinds, meaning Saccharomyces cerevisiae, so many things from there can go wrong. Oftentimes, the, the, the biggest challenge is the attenuation. Many, many indigenous or native or wild, whatever word you might like to use, yeast strains, they do not fully ferment a beer. In other words, they have a very small attenuation range. So that's the yeast's ability to consume sugars and produce alcohol. So if a brewing strain can't attenuate or ferment a beer, then it's not suitable for brewing beer. It's not going to work and there's nothing we can do about it. It's just that that, that little yeast strain, as beautiful as it is for the rest of the ecosystem, it, it's, it's not going to work for beer. For beer. So that's mm -hmm. another chopping block. The other side of that is that it has too high of an attenuation range, usually meaning that it's diastatic positive. And that's another place in the brewing industry where there's some fear, some miseducation, sometimes, not for everybody, I, I don't want to say that, but Oftentimes, brewers don't want to use a diastatic positive or an STA1 gene positive brewing yeast strain because it means two things. One, that it attenuates too high. So it, it takes up, it consumes so much sugar that the beer is too dry, almost too dry to still be appropriate for the style and is not what they're hoping for or, or, or palatable the way they want it to be. And the reason why that happens is because diastatic positive yeast strains are capable of consuming not only more of the sugar in present in the beer, but also different types of sugar. So it'll continue to ferment and continue to ferment way past the normal range which means that it can continue to ferment in kegs, in bright tanks, and in cans. So from the consumer side, that can mean that you have exploding cans, which is not good for the consumer and is not a great reputation for the brewer. And in terms of the kegs and the bright tanks, it means production problems and distribution problems and, you know, so... So you can work with diastatic strains. It's not that breweries don't. Many, many Belgian and Saison yeasts that make Belgian and Saison beers are diastatic positive. 
But brewers do that because they know they're going into that. They're expecting that. Doesn't mean they want to use a lot of them. That's for one, you know, one particular beer that, you know. So we don't want our entire native yeast catalog to be diastatic positive yeast strains. So we've already got enough of those. So at this point forward, they also tend to make the chopping block. All right. So then from there, of course, you know, last but not least is flavor. That was a long, long, lengthy answer. But from there, it's flavor. And sometimes the flavor is no good either. They're too funky and they're too weird and they're too peppery or they're. Too- There's so many breweries out there making their own unique thing. I think you're going to have something in those too pepperies or too sours eventually. They're like, I got to have something different. So it's, it's, yeah. it's catalog that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know what's so funny is that going back to that kind of initial pipe dream that, that, that original passion project, which was about building the terroir of, of Texas sea strains. Although in, in some ways we, I don't want to say we abandoned that project, but, but other things became more important. However, looking back on it, we, we can still see a theme. And so I will share that with you is that ironically native or indigenous yeast strains in Texas have an overwhelming and recurring flavor profile. So because of that, Many still make the chopping block because we already have that flavor profile, which is fruit and spice. And these are flavors that are common within Belgian yeast strains and Saison yeast strains. So they're already highly available in the brewing world. So we're always looking for something else besides that flavor profile. We've got so many indigenous Texas yeast strains that are fruit and spice and clove forward that we're always looking for the yeast strains that don't have those flavors so that we can offer something else. And because the vast majority of them taste that way, apparently Texas creates Belgian (laughs) or Belgian-like yeast strains or Saison-like yeast strains. And so those tend to make the chopping block as well. It's interesting that you could just, from, from Belgium all the way to Texas, uh, these yeast strains, I mean, they travel, obviously, they travel on birds, migratory birds, feet, and everything just gets redeposited. There was, I know there was stuff done on algae that algae strains that shouldn't be in certain parts of the world will show up in the right conditions, and then we know how they got there. So, yeah, yeah, this is very, yeah. Or alternatively, they've always been that way. It's just that historically they were associated with with Belgian beers and, yep. and now we're realizing that the same profiles are also here and that may be about geography or elevation or any number mm-hmm. of things. Yeah. So in this process, and you have about a team of three or four right now? Yes. Okay. Obviously communication is incredibly important and communicating all the steps that things are taking through I'm sure lab protocol, lab books, and even just on the side of the business. So how how does how do you use your team to contribute to the success of this process? I think that, you know, when we started just the two of us, uh, of course, you know, Rob was the, Rob made the yeast, right? Rob is the scientist. Rob is the biochemist. He's the one who got that first lab job in in a university laboratory setting, propagating yeast. He's the one who knows about these. I come from an administrative background. I come from a managerial background. And so from day one, it was just, you make the yeast and do the science. I run the company and kind of everything else. 
And then Eric came in and I should, in case you ever listens, Dana came in before that, also a biologist. And she helped bring in so much knowledge and so much of our sort of laboratory setup and, and really did so much for the company. And then that was taken over by Eric, who has a physics background. And so although he is going on to graduate school and will probably take physics in a different direction, he brings all of these kind of, he's got a, a very engineering mind, you know, so he thinks things through and he's the data collector. And so, and, and then next, and this is a little bit of a secret, but we have a, a professional brewer coming in next. So I think it's all about recognizing that on the one hand, as a business owner, you're always wearing a million hats. And every entrepreneur knows and is about to find out that you're going to wear a million hats. So I've never been an accountant, but I sure had to learn real fast. Mm -hmm. And I'm also the floor sweeper and the toilet scrubber and the social media person and the website developer. And I'm also the assistant brewer and I run the CIP and I fix the glycol chiller. And that's just the reality. And so you have to find ways to... You're constantly finding ways to not, it's very stressful. So you have to remember not to blame and you have to remember that everybody's working just as hard as you are. And you have to remember that everybody is wearing a million hats. And at any given time, the reality is any one of you is probably doing something that is not necessarily your passion, your interest, or your skill set, but you're doing it anyway. And that's okay. <laughs> And so you continually work with each other to find ways to put people in the positions that they like and are good at and, and try your best to kind of develop those positions. And so with Eric, when he first came in, he was going to really focus on the yeast stocks and developing the yeast stocks, maintaining the yeast stocks maintaining the quality control, testing the quality of the yeast before it goes out the door. What we didn't know, and we've continued to encourage and develop, is he's also great with computers and, you know, sort of the databases and all these wonderful protocols that I just never even thought of. But he would say, hey, do you want me to make a QR code for this? Yeah. Or do you want me to build, you know, an Excel spreadsheet that we can all look at and, and, and edit from anywhere. Yeah. And should I maybe make a data code for this? Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. And you just have to develop that. And, and every time that it's something they like or they're interested in, or they've offered and it, and it benefits the team, you say yes, as long as it doesn't take away from the rest of your job. And maybe they're so good at it that you take mm -hmm. away a little bit of their other work. Yes, striking that balance. They need that energy yes, exactly to be able to do right. these things they want to try. Yeah, Exactly right. Exactly right. And I'm a very physical person. So for me, the same thing happened in sort of managing the company and, and being sort of, quote unquote, the, the business manager. Yeah, I do that because I have to. But the truth is, Rob can't be the scientist and the researcher and the production manager all at, all at the same time. There's no way to fit that all in one day. And, and I like being very physical. I've always enjoyed that. So I can clean the tanks and I can break down the propagators and I can run CIP and 
and I can do the brewing. So there's no reason why I can't. I'm, I'm good at it. I enjoy it. And so he in turn takes on a little bit more of the business side so I can do even more than, you know, so, yeah. I mean, you just, you just have to acknowledge everyone's strengths and weaknesses and how many hours there are in a day. And you just continue to address those balances. And, and when you can afford it, you take on yet another person who will take even more of that work and take, you know, a little piece of the pie from everybody because that's their specialty. And, and then you all grow and you all develop and advance from there. And it all helps the company. Yeah. In what ways do you believe that approach has helped your team culture? So much, you know, when it was just in the beginning, you know, as I mentioned in, in the way that we got started, I knew nothing about you. Absolutely nothing. My background when you and I talked about it briefly, my background is theology. I I have a, an undergraduate degree. I have two undergraduate bachelor's degree and a master's degree. Uh, and it's all in religious studies and theology. And I was teaching at the university uh, here in San Antonio. And I was sort of the, the doing advising and teaching and, and project management and all these different things. I didn't know anything about yeast. I knew very little about craft beer other than drinking it. And so I had to learn everything from scratch. I had to learn everything there was, everything that Rob could teach me, everything that anybody else could teach me. Lots and lots of reading, lots of podcasts, just like yours, lots of reading, some online classes, just absorbing everything I possibly could as I came to the reality that this was the direction we were going in. And Rob couldn't possibly do it himself. And it most likely looked like I was going to co-manage and co-own this business with him. It's just, it just, just the truth, you know, um, I mean, like so many brewers, I mean, I would say that 90% of the professional brewers I know never once went to brewing school, you know, you homebrew and you get your foot in the door or you, or you get your foot in the door, not homebrewing one way or another, you just learn it. So I don't know if that answers your question. No, it does. It helps me. What your your who was it? That was going to be the uh, going into physics. Eric. Eric. So Eric reminded me of something I used to do in the lab. And this actually how I pivoted into what I do today is uh, just constantly updating and constantly tweaking things and what ifs. So I'm always experimenting on my method as well as the experiment uh, and. That's kind of became what how I stepped into facilitation, workshop design, and so I, I've taken it from a scientific perspective and brought it into into the beverage industry. Uh, so yeah, I really in that is literally what he's doing is how I pivoted. Eventually, I was you know improving. Uh, I was working for much larger labs that had pipelines, so they had pipeline managers. So one part of the experiment would go through there, and the next part would go through. And I was working. I started stepping and pulling the managers aside and asking them. So take me through your process, and I would draw it. I would visualize it for them. And through that visualization, they were able to quick, more quickly find their bottlenecks in the processes and quick fix. They would actually run out the door on me. I would finish. <laughs> they go fix it and they come back. So yeah. anyway, that that really with what with Eric's doing is I definitely identify he's definitely on the right steps for growing and 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 you giving him that freedom is very great, very good. So anyway, just had to go off on my own little tangent. Yeah, no, that's I I think. 
Yeah. I mean, I love that. And I love that you were able to acknowledge that, that mm-hmm. skill and passion and kind of stop one day and say, Hey, there's something here. <laughs> there's something here. There's and something I think here. it's really easy because when you, when as an entrepreneur and running your own business and, and kind of working from the ground up, everything is so stressful. And you're fitting so many things into one day and you're trying to figure out how to market yourself. And maybe you've never done that before. And you're learning so many new skills that you've probably never done before. And you're wearing so many hats that for such a long time, you're just putting one foot in front of the other and trying to get it done. Whatever it is, you're trying to get it done. It is very hard sometimes to kind of look up and and find the problems and address them it can be very hard to find easier or better ways to do things you know it's like the working smarter not harder it can be very easy to work harder not smarter for a long time because you you, you it's hard to take a breath and look at that <laughs> and so being able to react to your team members and not just say, Oh yeah, sounds cool. Do it. But instead say, wow, you're really good at that. Are there other things that you could think of? Are there other things that you can improve? Do you enjoy doing that? Cool. Do it. I, I support you. (laughs) Yeah. Otherwise it's just really easy to do things the same way every day and never to just, you know, running out of time. And it's sometimes it's hard to kind of have the, I don't know, the privilege of enough time to think about how to do things better. So where uh, do you want, do you see, or do you want to take some community cultures next? Yeah. So we are growing right now. We're always growing. I mean, I think that's part of uh, what they call sort of thing, organic growth, right? Starting mm-hmm. in your garage and then being a little bit bigger and then you make a little bit money and you get a little bit bigger. We've been doing that for day one, but we're, we're this year in particular, we've really expanded the building, our equipment, and we're getting that all online so that we can produce even more product, even better product and do it all in a much more efficient manner. So that, that's been kind of the goal of this year. And that's all sort of equipment focused. Next year, I am so excited. We are looking at two specific roles to fill, two employee roles to fill. We have a very good idea of the the people that we want in that role. And if we can make that happen, I am just beyond ecstatic and so thrilled to have them on board. So that will be five of us. And specifically with those people, I'm excited about having experts in each one of their positions where everybody is truly doing what they both love to do and are really good at doing it and and watching what the company can accomplish with those five people in jobs that in which they excel and are really passionate about, (laughs) you know, the potential there. So that, and then that's such a simple, small thing, but it's, it's a very exciting thing in terms of sort of big projects or, or what you can kind of look for in terms of our, our company. It's very much up in the air. So I, I don't want to kind of make promises that I can't fulfill, but what we're looking at and what we're talking about and sort of 
turning over in our minds is really kind of expanding a much more robust educational side of the company. So that's about classes, yeast management classes, cell counting classes, how to create and, and budget for creating your own brewery lab setup, how to hire a brewery lab tech. So that, that, those types of educational offerings, because we'll have the people to do it. Another direction that we've thought about, and this is very much up in the air, so stay posted, I guess, is a very small tap room that will not be necessarily our own brewery. But because we have a very a beautiful and very highly functioning brewery set up now, we have a fully functioning brew house, a very sophisticated brew house uh, that is perfectly capable of making beer. So we can, we have all the equipment to pivot into making fully fermented beer, as well as the yeast that we sell to breweries to make their beer. So we have talked about maybe a pop-up situation, potentially fermenting beer that we would use in sort of a flight that would be part of an educational series. So for example, one, one thing we've thought about is, for example, a deep dive into lagers and fermenting several lagers with many different yeast strains back to back that we would serve in a flight so that you get to taste all of those yeast strains back to back, all the different lager yeast strains. And then we do a full educational class on the history of lagers and we do a tour of the facility and you get to meet the scientists and meet the brewers and it's very focused and and so we've looked at that as a possibility that's a really neat way to demo your catalog you have of strain it's great that's the idea yeah all right so final couple questions here and this one tends to be the hardest but it's gonna be unique for you so and i'm gonna have to specify this so what is your favorite beverage from one of the yeast strains the other breweries have used of your your products that you've had? My favorite beverage that is fermented with our product. Yes. Correct? Okay. I don't know. That's, That's a better way to put it than I did. <laughs> <laughs> Can I have more than one? Sure. Gosh. Okay. Hold Out Brewing in Austin. They make several beers with our product. They have fantastic lagers and they have an award-winning hazy IPA called Leaf Peeper. Okay. Another one is Oddwood Brewing, also happens to be in Austin. And all of their lagers are made with our yeast. They're incredible people, amazing team. They make fantastic lagers. I think they're all my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> wow that's they make a french lager that is particularly it's particularly good they only make that once a year uh, sad face oh ah uh, gosh jester king jester king jester. made a couple of sort of a native desert yeast series that was so much fun to do with them and and, and great to sort of collaborate with them that was amazing so many uh <laughs> Well, we got your top three here. So that's yeah. great. That's great. One thought three come to mind. So that that is awesome that you have some really uh, people have really um, benefited from your 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 yeast and stuff. So do you have any like? Well, 
one, where can people find you? And uh, or do you have any promotion events or places you like to show up so people can, you know, I don't know if you've ever gotten to those flights yet of different tastings or how do they find out more about you? Uh, yeah. So we, we are in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, we are, uh, we're not necessarily open to the public being a wholesale mm-hmm. manufacturer, but we do have sort of public hours. So you can go mm-hmm. to our website or reach out to us if you ever want to visit or you'd like a tour. We do, we do that. We also sell homebrew packets of yeast and homebrewers can come to the lab and ring the front door and come pick up their, their homebrew packets. So you can find us there. And, and of course we, we are on social media we're on Instagram and Facebook and, and we have a website. And so, and then physically we are all over the place. So for example, tomorrow we will be at the Texas Craft Brewers Guild Annual Beer Festival in Austin, and I will be there as a volunteer. I will be working the Pink Boots table, pouring all of the Pink Boots Society beers. And then in a couple of weeks, the National Honey Board has their conference, their annual conference in Austin, and I will be doing a, a presentation on yeast that we extracted from a honeybee. And made an award-winning beer with Vista Brewing out in Driftwood. I'm at all the the Texas Craft Brewers Guild events. I always have a table there. You can always come and find Rob and myself there at all the guild events. (laughs) Or we're in the brewery. (laughs) We're in the back of the brewery or the front of the brewery. We're always at a brewery. (laughs) So do you have breweries outside of the state of Texas that use you as well? We do. We we don't. We do very very little advertising because of that organic growth and that organic growth budget. We we don't do a lot of advertising. Advertising in our niche market is very expensive. That kind of B two B business advertising is highly focused, highly specialized. So it's lots of word of mouth. So the vast majority of our breweries and our and our clients are here in Texas. But we do have a couple. We've shipped yeast out to Alabama, Louisiana, Arizona, I think Pennsylvania, and weirdly enough, Italy. <laughs> That's awesome. We, yeah, we have a, a small uh, homebrew shop that sells our homebrew packets out in in Italy. So That's great. Well, I hope that people get to listen to this. Hopefully some brewers get to listen to this. Uh, I've, I've interviewed quite a few brewers right now from Missouri. So who knows, Yay. you know, maybe they'll... We love Missouri. We can ship And also uh, the distilleries. I, they, they basically brew a, a beer first and then distill that out. So why not? I mean, everybody's looking for different, unique ways, unique flavors, unique unique approaches. And you were definitely a starting point for, um, for that. That is great. Well, Yeah. Mara, I'd like to thank you very much for your time. This has been great. I, I've got to kind of geek out back to my lab days. I've got to learn your great origin story and what you're doing to help support the beverage industry. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks for all of your your fantastic questions. It was nice to answer slightly different questions and geek out with you too. <laughs> all right. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Harvest to Pour, the business of beverages with Matthew Shep. Check the show notes for our guest contact information and connect with Matthew Shep on LinkedIn today.